Hi, and welcome to another sensory approach to manual therapy podcast. Today, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the pain gate cycle, which most of us are probably familiar with. And then I want to begin to go into how the theory of the pain gate cycle relates to chronic pain in regards to uh, something that we call long-term potentiation. Um, It relates to habituation, sensitization, and sensory adaptation and habituation in regards to neuroplasticity and the long-term changes that occur at a synaptic level in the brain. And then if we have time, we're going to discuss briefly how touch affects that. And so the first thing we're going to get into is just a quick refresh on the pain gate cycle. Uh, It was um, Ronald Melzack and Patrick Wall in 1965. They first proposed this theory that both thin and large diameter uh, nerve fibers carry information from a site or a stimulus uh, to to two destinations in the dorsal horn um, of the spinal cord. The transmission cells carrying this signal go up to the brain uh, from the dorsal horn and inhibitory interneurons impede transmission cell activity, meaning um, not as much of information is sent forward towards the brain. Activity in both the thin and large diameter fibers um, excites the transmission cells. So information goes from a site, uh, let's say the skin or the bottom of your foot or your organs, whatever it is. And that information gets transferred to the dorsal horn where the transmission cells interpret that information because they're excited and they try to send that signal up to the brain. Uh, The thin fiber tends, the thin fiber activity tends to impede the inhibitory cells, which allows the transmission cell to fire more. And the large diameter fiber excites the inhibitory cells, which inhibit the transition cell activity. And so more often than not, you'll hear people talk about the thin and large diameter in regards to pain and touch. And you'll notice that I've been specifically avoiding those terms and using the word stimulus instead, because our newest research, the newest research that comes out, um, especially with Lauren Ramalsley's stuff, really doesn't negate the pain gate cycle in regards to stimulus, but we aren't talking about pain as being something that's occurring at an injury site and then sent up these cell fibers. It's stimulus that's sent up these fibers and it's pain is perceived in the brain. So first of all, adapting how we look at the pain gate cycle slightly and updating it to understand that stimulus is sent up these fibers um, should begin to already change how we communicate with our clients about where pain originates from because when we think about pain originating let's say at the injury site um, and then being communicated to the brain it actually makes us also think that if we treat only the injury site that we can get rid of the pain in the brain and we know that's not the case that the treatment needs to occur on the site of injury make sure there's no tissue damage but also the brain needs to have a re-education process so reevaluating how we think slightly about the pain gate cycle um, should help us understand greater treatment in regards to not isolating to only focusing on the site of injury. Another thing that a lot of people forget 
conveniently when it comes to pain gate theory is that emotions and thoughts determine the way the pain is perceived. Now, this goes more towards what Laura Mosley talks about with pain being perceived in the brain and threat perception dictating whether or not we have pain and the level of pain. But people don't talk about this when they talk about uh, the pain gate theory. They tend to conveniently forget it. But that was also proposed a very long time ago. Um, the pain signal transmission is influenced by emotions and thoughts. So again, um, you know, uh, uh, our emotional state, our thought process, our mental state, our stress levels will affect our perception of pain. Uh, and this, you know, this was talked about back in the 60s, quite a long time ago. And science is, is really backing up these statements now. But when people historically talk about the pain gate theory, they, they really do tend to ignore these concepts which is, is unfortunate because they're only accounting for half the overall picture there. Um, individuals, uh, they do not feel chronic pain, um, or to be more appropriate, the pain isn't, um, doesn't disturb them when they concentrate on, on, uh, on different activities that are interesting to them. And, and this, we've all had patients or clients like this who they say they're in discomfort, low back pain, but when they're focused on an activity that's enjoyable, they tend not to notice the pain as much. And again, this goes to the theory that if pain was originating in the injury site, um, then it doesn't matter the level of activity that they're doing or what they were doing, the pain signal would still stay constant. But because it's perceived more in the brain, uh, that distraction reduces the pain. So when we talk about the pain gate theory, we it, if we update how we communicate about it, it should shift our thought process away from a stimulus to the body that is transferring information to the brain that is painful. Instead, it should make us think there's a stimulus to the body and the brain perceives it as painful and both need to be addressed in our care. Uh, they also found that individuals who are anxious and depressed tend to feel more intense pain and they find it more difficult to cope with. Uh, and so this is important because the brain sends messages on the descending fibers that stop and uh, reduce or, or amplify the transmission of pain signals and uh, depending on our thoughts and emotions. And so the stop, reduce and amplify become important because the positive emotions, the lower stress levels, the positive distractions can stop or reduce these pains or these, these descending messages um, that could be pain perceptions. Um, whereas our negative thoughts, our, our lack of hope, our theory that this pain will be forever and, and there's no hope behind how to get rid of it, that can actually amplify those those uh, signals. And so this leads us into a process that we call potentiation, habituation, and sensitization. And this becomes important because this is actually where most of the chronic pain patients we deal with and clients we deal with are going to receive long-term benefits. It's just not necessarily a process we're familiar with or that we're used to thinking about, but it plays a very important role in treatment. And it's one of the reasons why I never allow my clientele to fall unconscious on the table. I don't let them fall asleep um, because potentiation, habituation, and sensitization are changes that occur in the brain at a synaptic level. And that change is more effective when they are conscious, not unconscious. And so falling asleep at a table, though it may feel good and unwinding for their stress when they're dealing with chronic pain, those changes that we're offering our clientele are actually not as profound. And so when we look at potentiation, it refers to the strength of a nerve synapsis, and it's called long-term potentiation. And you have likely heard of the concept uh, that's quite familiar. It says that cells that fire together wire together. 
And this is one of the major uh, cellular mechanisms that underlies how we learn and memory. So uh, traumatic experiences create a very large wire where the memory and these sensations are attached together. Uh, and that's a, you know, car accidents, uh, PTSD, abuse, things like that. But we also have repetitive behavior where they fire together so frequently that the individual experience is not traumatic, but the overall time and effort put into using those uh, nerve fibers make it where those um, those nerves fire together. So cells that fire together, wire together. So now when we start having somebody who does a repetitive behavior with pain and they do it for an extended period of time, their pain and their movement become so inter intermingled that separating the two becomes a, a complex scenario for them themselves. We learn about this quite a bit when we look into something called the ritual of behavior versus the addiction of behavior. And a good example of this, uh, the difference between behavior and addiction here is um, if ever, if you're a coffee drinker and you have your coffee in the morning and it's become an addictive or ritualistic behavior, when you don't have that coffee, the entire day feels slightly off, or maybe it's your tea, or maybe it's showering first thing in the morning, it's that cup of orange juice, or maybe it's going to work and your traffic um, is taking a detour because of some accident and whatnot. And that subtle shift in your behavior is sets off the rest of your day and on a, in a spiral. Even though maybe later on that day you get a cup of coffee or you get your tea or you do get to work, even though you may get the actual chemical stimulus you're looking for with, let's say, caffeine, um, that should, quote unquote, make your day go smoothly because you didn't get a drink at first thing in the morning, maybe sipping, watching the sunrise, or maybe while you're running around chasing your kids, because the behavior was slightly off, um, the day tends to be just slightly off. And this is called something we call the ritual behavior versus the addiction of behavior. And this is where we talk about nerves that fire together, wire together. This is where we as therapists can try to make sure our clientele pay attention to those first 15 steps from your bedroom to the shower in the morning when you have plantar fasciitis, how many of them actually elicit pain and counting them and paying attention and noticing throughout the treatments, do the number of steps reduce and consciously paying attention to how many steps it takes to reduce those symptoms or how long does it take for their arches and their feet to feel warm enough where their plantar fasciitis isn't causing them discomfort? Is it five minutes? Is it 30 minutes? Is it when the kids leave the house? Um, so that they're consciously aware of this and then they can focus on that on a daily basis, including note taking and journaling so that over the course of several weeks, they begin to perceive that change on their own on a conscious level that's really brain related not necessarily therapy related, not necessarily movement related. We're not asking them not to walk. We're not asking them to do different behavior necessarily. It's just that by them being conscious of how frequently their pain is real versus in the back of their mind versus concentrated, um, it, it begins to change their perception of their own discomfort. Um, so this is really important because we want to retrain the brain to learn to have less chronic pain. Um, habituation is another component here. The first theory that we just talked about was potentiation. Habituation occurs when we learn not to respond to a stimulus that is presented repeatedly without change, um, punishment or reward. And this is an example of uh, change. So they may have become habituated to having the painful experience uh, when they do their activity. And our goal is to present them with treatment that retrains that process so that they become habituated to not experience pain when that area of the body is either touched or manipulated 
And this is one of the reasons why we never induce a grimace. That theory that was very popular in the 80s that I still see, uh, I mean, I saw a, a video just the other day of a therapist uh, offering treatment on YouTube and the, the client was tapping the table and sweating and, and there's this sense of pride that they're dealing with so much discomfort and yet the science doesn't justify it. We should not be inducing pain. We should not be inducing anything greater than a grimace in our clientele in order for them to get habituated to touch in the area, treatment in the area, movement in the area where pain is not induced so that their brain begins to perceive a sense of positive change. And over time and repetition, again, cells that fire together, wire together, over a period of time uh, and, and stimulus, these areas of the body will begin to perceive less chronic pain because they'll perceive less threat with touch, movement, things like that. Uh, and so this becomes important as well. And then the last one is sensitization. This occurs when a reaction to the stimulus increase, um, causes an increased reaction to a second stimulus. And this would be what we would call, uh, cause, uh, call a positive feedback loop. Uh, they're in pain. The brain perceives it as a threat, becomes hypersensitive to a lower level of stimulus. That's lower level of stimulus induces pain once more. That pain causes, again, a threat perception in the brain, which causes a hypersensitivity to a mild stimulus. And so, again, with the habituation, we have to reduce the influence of treatment, both in time on the table and pressure. So, again, not all treatments should be lasting 55 minutes. Not all, not all clients need that when they're in chronic pain. Yes, some do, and they're there for relaxing, and they're there, they're, they're there to unwind. But when they deal with chronic pain, sometimes they need less time on the table, and they need just the right amount of stimulus. And the right amount of stimulus is not always 55 to 60 minutes to 90 minutes. Sometimes the right amount of stimulus is 30 minutes, and then they need to leave. Uh, so their body has that ability to change. Um, so it's really important. Habituation and sensitization, they work in different ways neurologically. Uh, in neural communication, uh, we have these things called neurotransmitters, and a neurotransmitter is released from one axon in a neuron. It bridges this gap called a synapse. It bridges, it crosses the synapse, and is picked up on the other side by the dentrates of the adjacent neuron. When we're dealing with habituation, fewer neurotransmitters are released from synapse A, um, so therefore, the adjacent uh, neuron has less information to pick up, and this is called hyposensitivity. And this is where if someone's in a chronic state of discomfort, we want to reduce that. So we're trying to create a hyposensitivity. Insensitization, which is usually what they have when they've come in and seen us because they're in pain already. However, more presynaptic neurotransmitters, this is from uh, synapse A, are fired across that gap. And so even if there are not a lot of dentrite neurons on the other end, they have a lot of neurotransmitters to pick up. And this becomes a hypersensitivity. And this is traditionally what happens with chronic pain. They get hypersensitive to a lower level of stimulus. Um, and so when you go in there and people do deep pressure or they consistently do their 55 minutes or they do fast movement all the time or they're asking the patients to do too many exercises, um, this is, we're taught this stuff and we're given these boxes as therapists that they're going to do a 60 minute session, but I can't remember the last time I did a 60 minute session because treatment needs to not be cookie cutter. It needs to be tailored to your client in front of you. And most clients with chronic pain don't need that level of stimulus. They need something else. And then the exercises that you give them when they go home 
continue that habituation pattern, but this is also where they need to journal, they need to pay attention to how much pain they're in, when they're in pain, what caused the pain, if anything, what movements or behaviors, the intensity of the pain, the type of pain, the frequency of the pains. This is where journaling becomes part of the actual treatment protocol. Um, and again, I know I've talked about it on my Instagram, but also in the podcast, like journaling is so important. Patients need, clients need to be journaling their symptoms and things like that. When it comes to the sensory adaptation and the habituation, sensory adaptation, this occurs primarily in the brain. And this is when the sensory receptors change and reduce their sensitivity to stimulus or unchanging stimulus. And this is where, as a therapist, if I put my elbow into somebody's QL or the gleat medius, if I can get them close to a grimace where their body starts to feel threatened but not actually bypass or overstep that boundary, and then I stay there, I don't move, I keep my pressure on that spot at that level, eventually their body will no longer perceive it as a threat, their brain will no longer perceive it as a threat, and they become habituated to this level of stimulus. And now the next time they go to move, they can handle more stimulus without inducing the pain loop that they have from nerves firing together. Um, and that's where with the habituation, we have a decreased response to the same stimulus um, after frequent exposure. So just stuff that I want to talk about when it comes to the pain gate cycle and how we need to be updating our theories around it, as well as um, sensory adaptation, uh, long-term potentiation. And this has a little bit to do with how neuroplasticity and manual therapy are related. Um, and it's also one of those things that unfortunately therapists are not, you know, we're not really taught to tell our patients to go home or clients, sorry, to, to go home and journal. And it needs to be done more frequently. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, and uh, please, if you haven't followed us yet on our Instagram page, feel free to. Feel free to listen to some of our other podcasts. And if you haven't had a chance yet to go to uh, sensoryapproach.com and sign up for our e-course, it's good for NCBTNB credits. And it's um, it'll take anywhere from four to six hours, depending on your learning and reading skills. And it covers a lot of the science that we just talked about. It covers a lot of the learning. And it also goes through some at-home exercises that you can do. It also has a fillable form that you can print, um, that you can give to your clients. Um, and this is one of the forms that I give my clients so that they can go home and they have a piece of paper that actually has, okay, how frequently do you have symptoms? When were the symptoms? How, what were the type of symptoms? How intense? Um, and, and that way it's, it's another little reminder. It's a little printable paper that you can give them to take home. Um, I'm glad you guys listened today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any questions, feel free to send me some comments and questions or any subjects that you guys are interested in. And uh, thanks for joining. Have a great day. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all.